Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hey Chase, how are we uh how are we doing today, bud? I am doing better now that I am talking to you. Oh, and sweet. we uh yeah, of course. And uh <laughs> taking a break from work and we're ready to uh, introduce our first guest. Ooh, is it is that time already? The uh, first guest of Cross of Gold? Yeah, we've got a, uh, oof, a half dozen and working on a baker's dozen of people to bring on of all shapes and sizes. Ideologically John, speaking. That's right. Uh, <laughs> John Sanders, uh, an elder at Reunion Church, is going to be talking to us. It's really an effort to bring you challenging perspectives that are personal, authentic, and from all over the spectrum. Cyrus, you might remember a few conversations ago. I talked about uh, five different Christian voter profiles. Do you remember that? Sure. Let's go with yes. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yes, well, well, I, I say all that I because I see five different types of Christians voting or participating in politics yeah. and it's never been so divided. Right. And I think quickly you have like a Christian who doesn't believe we should be voting. You have a Christian that has a one issue they vote on. You've got a socioeconomic uh, voter, right? You've got a biblical values, take it to the world, but never Trump voter. And then you've got a biblical values, we need to take it to the world. And yes, I love Trump, like slash, I'll put up with Trump to get the platform I want. And right, so, hold my nose. and Yeah. Go. And so John's one of those. One of those, not one of those in terms of the last one, but one of those in terms of one of them. And, you know, we don't want to give it away. We'll let you get to it uh, at some point. But before we get into the interview, I do want to just cover a little bit about the way we want to conduct interviews here across the gold. Uh, we're going to do it a little bit differently in that just the nature of this podcast is that there's a lot of competing viewpoints and that there's always going to be something that either Chase or I uh, or our producers or whoever doesn't doesn't agree with. And I don't agree with views, you. Yeah, we'll find even you know repugnant in ways. But the nature of the show is that we also want allow those people to to fully express and articulate their perspectives, so that Chase and I can feel like we gave them the chance to get their message across as clearly as they could, and then from there we can talk about it and challenge some of those points. You know, sort of post interview. So. And you know what, Cyrus, from the Christian perspective too, I think there's this uh, felt observation over many decades that a traditional Christian, uh, Catholic, whatever uh, morality has governed the cultural like dialogue and what is right and wrong and what can't be said and what should be said. And so I just think it's really a, a needed step towards humility for people who believe in Jesus, want to seek to model their lives after him and, and bring forth the kingdom of God to do some listening. And to do some understanding and some empathizing um, in order to love people more. 
Yeah. And even if, even if it's to understand your own positions more and strengthen your own positions, I think it is useful to hear the logic people have for the things they believe. Uh, so I think it's time to go ahead and get into the John Sanders interview and let's uh, send it. Yeah. Very excited to bring John Sanders on. It's been one of our missions to, to grow, love each other, but also challenge our own thoughts to make sure, especially as, as Christians, we're doing what Christ wants us to do. And I think there's been more division politically in the, quote, body of Christ than since when I've been alive and probably a few decades before that. So it really means a lot to us to, to bring John on, who has a different view politically, and, and, and it's informed by his beliefs. And so, John, thank you very much for joining us on Cross of Gold. Good to be here, Chase. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, John. Absolutely. Maybe you can intro us. I'm not giving you an awesome sterling intro, but you know what? You're an elder at Reunion Church downtown. Uh, the Lord called Samantha and I there. It's not where I thought we would be, but man, it's, uh, it's, it's a different place. Maybe you can tell folks how you know me and, and how you started at Reunion, and let's, let's start there. Okay, so of course I met Chase during the meet and greet uh, at Reunion Church. Uh, Reunion Church is a little bit different. Uh, we are multicultural, a lot of background from different, uh, different points of view as far as Christianity is concerned. Folks from different backgrounds like Catholic, uh, some atheists, some Baptist, Episcopalian, whatever. So we've got a nice little mix going there. And so during our service, uh, we have some worship time and then uh, we have... Uh, what we call a meet and greet. And that's a period of time where we, we actually, you know, you've seen it on, you probably, if you've ever watched TV, church services on TV, you've seen the pastor or the worship leader say, turn to your neighbor and say hi, that kind of thing. Uh, that doesn't work at Reunion Church. Uh, this thing can run as long as 10, 15 minutes sometimes, where you actually get an opportunity to engage the individuals that you're meeting. And uh, that's how I met Andrew, that's how I met Chase. So yeah, that's how I met uh, Samantha. Andrew, so one of our producers. Full kind of uh, community there. There's some. There's a little bit of intentionality behind building a community at the church. Absolutely. I was just saying it's definitely intentional. So, so John, really interested in um, what it is you believe and what it is maybe you think or, or have an opinion of politically. You're a black man. And are, are you a Christian? Are you a Baptist or non-denominational? What are you, sir? I'm a Christian. Um, and that that's, can be a loaded word in the United States. Yeah. In Western society, actually. But I'm a Christian. Uh, that okay. means that I, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Uh, that means that I believe that um, I've been forgiven for my sins that's what being a Christian means. It means that I've committed myself to follow Jesus Christ in his ways. I wasn't always that way. I grew up in church, a Louisiana boy, and uh, grew up in church. Uh, by the time I was nine, 10 years old, I was teaching Sunday school, uh, got baptized when I was 10 years old. But uh, being baptized and doing things, quote unquote, in the church is not what makes you a Christian. Mm. So I got baptized at age 10. Uh, nothing changed. There's supposed to be some kind of change when you become a Christian. 
and um, uh, nothing changed. I just went, continued doing what I was doing and grew, grew older and uh, off to college at 17. I left college determined, I left home determined not to believe anything just because my mom or my dad had taught me. Mm, noble. I wanted to know the truth for myself. Cyrus probably feels a little bit of akin to that, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, definitely am the type that, uh, you know, I, it, the learning process takes a few extra steps for me. If I need to know <laughs> an oven's hot, I usually have to burn myself three or four times to finally get the, get the message. But that's really interesting to me that, that during that time you were set out with, with some more intentionality of really discovering your own worldview. So how did you go from that, which is sort of where I find myself now in a lot of ways, to coming back to the church? Or what was that, what was that process like? Well, yeah, you're, I don't want to say an older uh, gentleman, but maybe not young either. So yeah, that's, that's probably a, a big sc- scope of time as well. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, well, at, I'm in. I'm in college at 17. And, uh, you know, to answer your question, Cyrus, um, I did what I have discovered most individuals who are skeptics are not willing to do. I studied. I dug. Uh, I wanted to know. So I studied Eastern mysticism, philosophy of religion. I studied all of the ancient religions. I studied all of that stuff. I want I, mm-hmm. I I will say this I will confess that I left home believing in God not because my parents had taught me to believe in God I left home believing in God because if I look up at the night nice sky or if I look under a microscope come on man it's not possible for this kind of order and this kind of intricacy to have just simply happened I'm sorry and by the way, I was trained to think scientifically. So that's quite a statement for me to make. But uh, sure. I, I left home believing in God. But which God? That yeah. was the question. Right. And what so, was going on politically in your mind at this point, too? Were you really like politically engaged or informed? Or does that come later? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, I come from a small town in Louisiana, 85% black. Uh, and by the time I was in my junior year, they had done enough uh, registering of people to vote that we were guaranteed to win. We had a, a political machine right there. Yeah, we had a pastor, a black pastor who was running for mayor and uh, guaranteed to win. I, even if we only had, if that 85% had dropped down to 65%, we still would have won. You got the graveyard vote too, don't forget. I mean, you got everybody. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, uh, but we didn't. And uh, a lot of Wait, so the black pastor lost. He lost. OK. And uh, a lot of angry black folks just about burned that little town down. Uh, Lake Providence, Louisiana, was an idyllic place to, to grow up. And it was it was beautiful. Right on the Mississippi River. Good fishing, good hunting. What, so what did that do to you being, where were you, what were you thinking about all that? Well, I, I became an angry young black man and left home uh, uh, determined to do something, quote unquote, uh, about the situation. Uh, so I got involved on, and this is the you know, uh, early 70s. And so I got involved on the tail end of the civil rights movement. Uh, on Southern University's campus, we did sit-ins, we did demonstrations, we marched out in the community, 
against things that we thought were not fair. And um, that's, that's where I was. And so at the same time that I'm doing this soul searching, I'm also participating in this process and, and balancing my classwork and all that stuff. So, um, so at that time in the sort of the civil rights movement, um, that, that later period, um, my understanding of it, obviously I wasn't there and only know from history and my own research, but uh, like Dr. King was advancing the poor people's campaign, the black Panthers and other, um, you know, nationalist organizations were, were starting to form coalitions multiracially, you know, the beginning of the rainbow coalition, I think started around that time. Was that like a big part of your political sort of acculturation at that period? Well, until this thing happened with the uh, campaign in my hometown, I had no real interest in politics, uh, but uh, I was angry. I had already, you know, personally suffered, I would call it persecution and oppression at the hands of white folks. I had dogs sicked on me when I was a kid. Uh, I was called stupid. The N-word was, <laughs> you know, ubiquitous. Let me put it that way. Uh, so I had already experienced a lot of stuff, but I had no real views politically until this happened. And then I began to, you know, dig into what was going on. And by this time, Dr. King was, was dead. He'd been assassinated. So right. we were on the second wave under Jesse Jackson and John Lewis and those guys. They were beginning to take over uh, at that point. So Rainbow Coalition was being birthed around this time at, the, at that time. Yeah. So um, that's where it all started. So I went to, to college with this load, with this, um, this baggage. And, uh, you know, it didn't distract me from my studies, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was intense. Sounds like there were a lot of different ideological ingredients in the, in the stew there, you know, what? you know. I don't want to speak for John, but uh, we go to a church that meets at the Center for Black Performing Arts and Letters in Dallas. And I was actually just like before the service, just kind of staring at a poster of Martin Luther King and John and I have, man, he's given me a lot of time on the weekends to dig into this, especially post murder of George Floyd. And he just came up behind me and said, uh, man, those were some heady times. <laughs> they were. Those were heady <laughs> times, man. So, yeah, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of uh, but, you know, any 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 college student is going to be hit with, you know, these competing philosophies. That's just part mm -hmm. of the part of the process. Uh, it's intensified when you get to college. And so that's what happened to me. I got involved right away. I'd never really been involved in a political, you know, anything political, actually. Uh, but I got involved right away with the, uh, uh, the demonstrations and the marches and stuff like that uh, in my off time and uh, was pretty, pretty serious about it. But oh. I was disappointed. Oh, Okay, so just as a quick, so, so you were searching spiritually, engaged politically, or practically, maybe as someone would say is uh, synonymous, but you just, yeah, set up a cliffhanger there, disappointed, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I was disappointed um, because I, I think this was, this was maybe, if I could quantify it, I'd say maybe the second or third time that I had gotten a real good awakening of to the, uh, the, the, the realities of humanity. Mm. And what I mean by that is we are in a planning meeting. These are all black folks 
you know, Southern University is a historically black college university. And so these are all black folks in this meeting. And um, <clears throat> discovered that the number one guy was sleeping with the number two guy's woman. Oh. Man, please don't don't tell me what white folks are doing to you when you're treating each other like this. Um, I swore off from politics for over 30 years after that. So that was pivotal, like just like that, you threw it that, down. That was definitely pivotal. And what I learned was that the issues that we were struggling and confronting, struggling with and confronting are not, if you can understand this, not necessarily racial issues, although that's what colored the whole conversation. These were human issues. And then I began to look at humanity going back and in, in, in history and human beings have mistreated one another historically. Um, in the more modern times, you look at Kosovo, uh, you look at the way the Irish and the uh, Italians were treated when they first immigrated to the United States. This is a human problem. It had taken on the characteristics of these two races because of the history of black folks in this country and black folks and white folks interacting with each other in this country. But what it taught me was that this is a human problem. And as well, long as we continue to deal with it as simply a racial issue, it won't be solved. You gotta broaden your view. It's yeah, I think we both wanna ask you questions there. Go Cyrus. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a, a really interesting um, realization you came to. Uh, something I would say I largely agree with. I guess I'm just curious to hear from you or, or your perspective. What What do you think is the root of that human problem? I have my own guesses, um, but is that just something that in your, you know, ideologically you'd say we're just born with, or is it something that's developed, or is it kind of a combination? At that time, I didn't know. I just knew that it was pervasive. It's it's everywhere. It's in everybody and mm -hmm. everywhere. Okay. And I, I had, I didn't know, but this, this happened pretty early. I, uh, by the time this happened, I guess I was uh, 19. So this would have been in, you know, toward going into my, my, my junior year. Um, and so I saw the, I was beginning to see things from a different perspective at the, and this, yeah. this, this also happened to be around the time when I was doing my, my most thorough digging on the spiritual front as well. Um, I, I came to some pretty definitive conclusions uh, around this time about spiritual things. A, is there a God? Yes. Why do I say that? Because, man, it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that something like what we witness on a daily basis as human beings just simply happened. That, that, that's, it takes more faith, actually, to believe that than that there is a God. I can't explain this God. I can't tell you where he's from. But when I see the order of the universe and when I see the orderliness and the beauty of our bodies and our minds, no, this is not accidental. So making that observation told me that probably 90 some percent of all the religions in the world didn't make any sense. Why you say that? Of, oh, I'm sorry. Can you can you clarify? You said from the observation of God to 90% don't make sense. Can you clarify? 
Yeah, because if if there if if there is a God and He did all this, He He must a be an intelligent God. And if He's an intelligent God, then He would not represent Himself as a rock or a tree or something like that. Just does not make sense. He He wouldn't He wouldn't be some amorphous, uh, you know, all encompassing force. That that's not what this God would be. This would be a thinking God. This would be a God who, who pondered things and arrived, came to conclusions and carried out those conclusions. That kind of God must be the kind of God that made this universe. And so that eliminated some 90 some percent of all the religions in the world. It left me basically with the big three. There were about four or five, but I eliminated those other two. Left me with the big three, and that's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Those are the only ones that really made sense to me. And by the way, I was not a Christian at this point. This is intellectual endeavor. Still in the searching phase. Yes, that's where I was then. And then so, still engaged politically during the searching. Or no, you soared off. I was disengaged at this point. Got it. And so I had a little bit more time to uh, read. Uh, yeah, a little bit more time to focus on, you know, what uh, the search. Turn uh, inward a little bit. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I, I decided that if I was going to do, do it justice, I would study all of these religions. And so I started with the oldest, uh, which is uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian. The Juda Judaism was the oldest. And I went to the Old Testament and studied that. I listened to one of some of Chase's uh, testimony in that third uh, podcast. Uh oh, and <laughs> and Chase was saying that he was talking about who Jesus was and all of that. All of that stuff is important, but to get to Jesus, you you you've leapfrogged over a lot. And so I started with the Old Testament because that's the foundation for all of it. And whereas I can make the same arguments that Chase made as to why he believes that Jesus is who he said he was, that's not where it starts. For me, it started with the Old Testament. Why should I believe this stuff? Should just I believe to, this stuff? Just to defend myself, John, I married a Jewish lady, so I covered my bases there. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely so. Yeah. So I started with the Old Testament, and it's fascinating reading. Uh, you know, What's interesting to me is that uh, atheists and agnostics and skeptics alike, they seem to poo-poo the idea that there is any value in scripture. And what's interesting about that is that it used to be you weren't even considered to be intelligent unless you understood scripture. You weren't, and I'm not talking about being a Christian, as an intelligent person in the community, in the society, you were not even considered to be intelligent unless you had, had unless you had just at least read the Bible. Well, so John, this really, yeah. I think, gets to some of these questions that we've been gnawing at in prep for our conversation, because like you've got this idea that uh, that scripture and God and certainly Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, moralities or even, you know, virtues, whatever you want to call them, are, are being removed. And that's a bad thing and bad for culture, bad for society. Therefore, a lot of Christians say we ought to fight for that in our politics yeah i'm not ready for that one yet okay <laughs> <laughs> i i think like from my perspective as someone who comes from a sort of an arts and letters background you know i he likes to read yeah, <laughs> so i couldn't do I. agree more so do i that 
that uh, up oh, there you go. That, that, I mean, that, that's probably, I think informed my understanding a lot. I mean, obviously I was raised very Christian and I have still a lot of uh, reserved knowledge from my days in Sunday school and in the church um, and teaching Sunday school as well. But that idea that, you know, there's pretty much two foundational texts to the Western cultural canon. One is the Bible and the other is Shakespeare. And so if you don't read those and understand those, you're going to be missing a huge amount of the points of reference that people use to articulate their, their ideas and ideologies. For Western society, for sure. For Western yeah. society. Yeah. yeah. So, they, they, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of my, my search at this point. I haven't drawn any conclusions. Uh, I'm just looking for the truth. And uh, I ran across uh, one of the prophets, Isaiah, and he spoke about a guy named Cyrus. And it was all this stuff is interesting reading, by the way. If you like good movies, you, you know, they, Hollywood could make a fortune if they just took the Bible and just every five years did a story on the Bible. They, 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 they'd get rich, richer. There's some dramatic stuff in there for sure. Yes. Uh, but I read about this guy named Cyrus, this, this prophet Isaiah, he said that a guy was going to come along named Cyrus, and he was going to free the Jewish people from their bondage. At that time, uh, I think they were under the um, uh, Persian Empire. And he named this, he called this guy by name and described him and what he was going to do. And this was like 150 or more years before this guy was even born. Now that stopped me. I said, wait a minute. Okay, that, this is where I'm going to determine if the Bible is really true. And so I went to my, my li uh, the, local, the library there on campus and, and researched Cyrus and discovered that what I read there in the Old Testament was exactly what happened. Now I'm, 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 I'm really, really curious at this point because I have dabbled in things like uh, Nostradamus and I've dabbled in things like the horoscopes and all that stuff over my, over, over my lifetime. But not, nothing in, in those arcane types of, you know, crevices, nothing compares to this kind of accuracy. So I was really, really curious at that point. And so I started looking for more examples of this. And when, by the time I had read the, whole, the Old Testament, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of similar prophecies that I could go to my local library and validate. And then I, had, I came to this conclusion. This book is not an ordinary book. If there is a God, he had to be involved in this process because human beings can't do this. And I mean, time and time again, I would run across prophecies that were true and I could verify them. You know, I studied a little philosophy. I studied a little logic, stuff like that. You know, in, in order for human beings to accept something as being true, there must be both internal and external evidence. It has, there has to be something more than just, I believe it's so. Okay, it, I, that's that I'm just being credulous if that's the case, right? So it's got to be something sure. more than that. There has to be some external um, corroboration as well. 
And so my logical mind said, there's something here. And uh, that didn't make me a Christian either. But I felt like I was getting to the truth, closer to it. Right. Narrowing things down a little bit. Yes. And so and then I took the, the New Testament, you know, Christianity, basically an offshoot of Judaism, um, and studied the New Testament. And again, I saw some things that just sort of piqued my interest and, and caught my attention. This guy named Jesus, I, I'm just, you know, even today, as long as I've been a Christian, I'm still fascinated by how the Jews could have missed this. This guy fit every prophecy of the Messiah that the Jewish people had, and yet they rejected him. Now, I later learned that that was part of the plan. It was part of the process, but I was surprised at that. So I looked at this guy, Jesus. He was obviously a good teacher, but he said some things about himself, and this is what Chase was talking about in his testimony. He said some things about himself, man, that if, if, we're, if, if, if they weren't true, this guy was off his rocker. And it deserved to be t- killed, by the way, because if, he, if, if the stuff that he was saying was not true, then he was going to mislead a lot of people. But every, on every, at every turn, everything that he said, and by the way, he always pointed back to the prophecies that caught my attention. And so I came to the conclusion that the Jews missed it. They got it wrong. This guy, Jesus, was exactly who he said he was. He said he was God in the flesh. He said that he was their Messiah. And he proved it in so many ways, you couldn't count it. Now, at this point, I'm making some assumptions. I'm making some assumptions that much of what I read in the New Testament is true. Now, why am I making this assumption? Well. If you look at the way that human beings verify the authenticity of written documents, it it goes something like this. There has to be, I said earlier, this internal and external corroboration of the evidence. And so if you take the the Iliad, for instance, and Homer's writings, they they go back and they say, how many extant uh, copies can we find? And uh, even the writings of Shakespeare, they go back and they look at that. I was blown away when I discovered that of the most uh, respected ancient documents, there's really only like, in some cases, two copies. In other cases, maybe 15 or 20. But when it comes to the writings of the New Testament, there are thousands of excellent copies out there. Not a lot of chance for, uh, uh, you know, what copy error or manipulation maybe by the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Correct. So, so listen, now keep in mind at this point, I'm not a Christian. I'm still just searching. And still not. And this isn't just to clarify, this is when you're still in college. I was still in college at this point. Yeah. I'm, I'm headed toward my last year now at this point. I discovered that. If there are any ancient documents that you should trust, it should be the New Testament. And so I, say, I came away from that, that study saying, okay, the New Testament is probably true. And then I compared the uh, writings of Islam. There are some, very, so there are some don't, guys, don't string me up when I say this, but there's some appealing things about Islam. 
If well, I mean, especially just I, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about Islam just because at that time, um, you know, you've got Malcolm X, you've got the Black Panthers, you know, you have a big uh, Muslims in America push. So I, I, I was, it was interested if you were had any kind of appeal to that. Yes, it was very appealing. Uh, these people uh, carried themselves with dignity and respect. And 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 they and I'll tell you that, you, you know, this from just recent history that when those people say they believe something, they actually do really believe it, okay? And so that was appealing. And, but I, I compared the sacred writings of this group with just like I did with the others. And uh, I discovered that the, um, the Islamic people made the same mistake that the Jews did. They, 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 they got Jesus completely wrong. One of the surahs in, in the... Um, uh, in the Quran says, uh, God neither begets nor is he begotten. And that's a swipe at Jesus, if you decode it. They're saying God doesn't produce any kids and he's never, he's never gotten, gotten any kids. That's what it's saying. Whereas Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he kept calling God his Father. So the, the Islamic people made the same mistake that the Jews did. They got Jesus all wrong. So you, you bring up a lot of interesting points to me in terms of like the um, radical nature of the Christian faith and especially of Jesus's teachings. Yeah. And that radical nature from, from what I've taken from it, from my limited understanding is, um, you know, G they, they, Jesus does have some things to say politically. Um in in the culture and and christians definitely have muslims maybe even more so because i think it came later and and you know that that sort of made it even more political but it, so if it, from what i've uh you know kind of gathered from you a little bit you're not necessarily apolitical but you have you know maybe unique take on how your christianity and your belief system should inform your politics and can you can you walk me through that a little bit yeah, and I guess I'm also interested in like, you know, after your 30 year hiatus and taking politics off, did you get back involved in politics or thinking we ought to be? Well, those are good questions, but I'm not a Christian yet. Not at this point. Okay. So give me a minute. Give me 90 seconds and I'll finish that part up. Sure, sure. So at this point, I've concluded intellectually that Christianity is the only religion in the world that really makes sense. But that did not make me a Christian. I thought, I think it helped me. It gave me some direction and some focus because now I can read the Bible just for nothing else but the moral and ethical parts of it. And I did that, but that didn't make me a Christian. My behavior as a human being you know, didn't really change. My heart and my motivations didn't change. Faith still wasn't part of the equation yet. It was really. not. This was all intellectual. And so it wasn't until, you know, so I'm going away with this, in the, with this knowledge in my head, but it wasn't until nine, let's see, that was, that was, I was 19. It was eight years later when I was 27, married with one kid and another on the way, had been pursuing medicine for basically all my life and in my junior year in medical school discovered that this is not what I wanted to do and now I'm in a crisis because I don't know what to do with that 
And I kept screwing up so badly that they finally kicked me out on my ear. And it was a good thing because then I went through a career assessment thing and discovered my true love, which was computer programming. And um, man, good I, time to get involved in that. Oh yeah, I love that stuff, man. And and but this was a crisis point, you know. I spent the majority of my life preparing for this one thing, and it fell apart. I was in crisis mode. I began to search for answers. I couldn't understand why this happened this way. Um, it was, these were dark times for me. Uh, I, I thought about suicide several times. It, suicide just never made any sense. There's gotta be answers somewhere. Um, I drank heavily at that time um, and was just, I, I did, did, I, I researched all of the religious stuff I possibly can could again within the the realm of Christianity and the fringes of Christianity. So I became a Rosicrucian. I became a Mason. Um, I became a Catholic. I was accepted into the Pauline order of Catholic monks. I, I <laughs> hey man, I was grasping for straws. I definitely appreciate the intensity. There, there had to be some yeah. answers for where I was. And uh, I sent off to San Francisco and got a professional astrological reading on my life. This is where I was. Best place and, for it. <laughs> and then, and then I remember. Scientist mindset though. I remembered something. And I can only, I can only say that this must've been God working, the spirit of God working. I remember that I had proven to myself intellectually that if there were any answers for humanity, they would be found in scripture. So I turned back to the Bible. And I just happened to be reading in one of the books that Paul wrote in First Thessalonians. I ran across one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It said, abstain from all appearance of evil. And it rocked my world. This was the first time in my life that I understood that I should be different than I was. And I knew I wasn't. In that one little verse, I saw the glory of God out there, perfection, moral perfection. And I despaired because I knew I wasn't that. And yet I yearned for it. I wanted it. Now I'm in a heap of trouble. I'm really in a heap of trouble now because I, I have no idea how to pull this. How do I fix this? I knew, I knew at that moment that I was what the Bible called a sinner. All of my life, I had been doing things contrary to what God said I was supposed to be doing. You're convicted, but it's really hard to actually change yourself. <laughs> Impossible. And so, yeah. so I, I didn't know what to do. I literally paced the floor night and day for about a week straight. And my first wife thought I was going crazy. And I, I probably was. But I ran across this little verse in the Bible. Again, in the Bible, it said, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, which of you, if your child asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Or if he asked for bread, would give him a scorpion? Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, if you then are evil, no, and, and yet you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? 
And for the first time in my life, I understood that I should be asking God for something. And so in Omaha, Nebraska, August 1981, in the middle of my living room floor, I was not being preached at, teached at, all by myself. I told God two things. I said, I don't want to be like I am. I want to be like you say I'm supposed to be. Give me your Holy Spirit and change me. And he did. I, 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 was, I, I, I felt different. I was, I was different. I knew it. I, it was something happened there. Was it like the experience you thought you were going to get during your baptism? But I, I had I didn't care about any experience when I was getting baptized. I was doing what I was told. I was doing what was expected of me back when I was 10 years old. That's all I was doing. Mm. This thing was different. I felt like my eyes had been opened. I knew what I was here for, what I was supposed to be doing with myself and, and how I was supposed to be living for the first time in my 27 years. That's when I began to think about the relationship between Christianity and politics. Oh. Never considered it until then. And what, I, what happened was I was in the military by this time. You know, uh, in 1972, that was around the time when they stopped the draft. My brother, who is about a little over a year older than me, was the last one in my family that was actually drafted. They skipped over me. But I volunteered. I loved the idea of the order and discipline of the military. I loved it. One of the few people that would say that he enjoyed basic training. And I went through that. I joined the military. And I was, <laughs> sorry, John, we've just got some odd looks from our producer. We went through Marine basic, just hand yeah. on forehead. Keep going. Though. <laughs> all right. Everyone in this conversation, including our producers has gone through basic. And I think we all got flashbacks right there. So, yeah, so I mean, I remember even uh, being like, cause I was a cadet basic. Right. And I remember uh, being like a cadet basic platoon sergeant. Yeah. Um, this is how like frazzled people get, or it's kind of a, a cadetism, but. I remember sending uh, new cadets into the bathroom for a urine sample and uh, they were so frazzled because it's like morning one. Ooh. I got more than one uh, urine sample cup filled with poop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, were, they were that nervous, right? They were, I, were they'd never given a urine sample. I, I'd like to, they, I, they didn't really know what to do. And uh, anyway, I, that's true. When I was given my first urine sample at West Point, I was frazzled for a couple reasons, but cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, right I, I love basic, man. I, I was good at it. I, um, and I, I went in, even though with my, um, my educational background, I went in as an enlisted person. I did that deliberately because I wanted to know, the officers had a bad rap and I wanted the experience from both sides. So I enlisted and uh, a year after being enlisted is when I um, uh, was commissioned. And I stayed in there from 77 to 82, so five years. But- Why'd you get out? I got, in, I got saved in 81. I became a Christian in 1981. And I began to question my involvement in politics and not just any involvement in politics as a, as a believer, um, because at this point I'm still not involved, but I know it's out there. I've, I'm, I've, got, I've got friends in the community. I've, we have these conversations with my friends about this stuff. 
And now I've become a Christian and I've really got some serious concerns about whether or not I should be involved. Why? Um, because I read the New Testament and my understanding of what Jesus is calling us to, um, you can't reconcile military service with that. Ooh, so wait a second. Because um, there's an article in USA Today talking about Christian nationalism in the last week. And I hear a lot of Christians, shucks, just in the military, in the South. I mean, part of being a good Christian is almost being a patriot. So no, I hear. Part of, it, part of being a patriot, a good patriot, is being a Christian. Ah, uh, yeah, that's even stronger. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's, it's funny you, you say it that way or phrase it that way, because I feel like a lot of the reason why I left the faith not not that i left the faith for the military but that i came to similar conclusions about christianity which is that the things it required you to do to really become a christian were a, a lot more than i had been led to believe in my childhood and the basic sunday school stuff you get that, that it does really require a taking up of the cross and following jesus that's right um, and at that time i felt like i just i didn't have the faith i didn't have um, that sense of faith that would allow someone to really make those sacrifices necessary to truly become a Christian. Um, so, but it sounds like you did. And that, I mean, I did. Well, and that conversely, it said, he just said, drove him from the military. I think John can, is that right? Yes. I, 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 um, but remember I loved the military. I, I went in because I loved it. But when mm -hmm. I became a Christian, I understood not only instinctively, but also from reading scripture, that this is no casual relationship. This is no casual commitment. This is an, literally an all or none commitment. And when you say, I'm a follower of Christ, you have committed yourself to transfer your allegiance from the kingdoms of the world to the kingdom of God. And there can be no mixing of the two no dual allegiance well it sounds no, also is... just we had a recent masculinity discussion and it sounds like you were rejecting any kind of passivity any kind of um any kind of friction in your thinking and you're you're, you're pursuing purity in whatever in ideologically yes and this by the way guys this was not easy this was a this was a traumatic time. I, I wrestle. I really wrestle with a lot of this stuff because I what I was the conclusions I was drawing from my reading. I couldn't see around me. No one else was thinking like this. All the Christians that I knew were flocking into the political arena. Not in Ronald Reagan's military. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, <laughs> and, and then looking. Remember how I grew up where I came from looking back on my past where I came from, all of my relatives and all of the, of my, the, the black community were, were entrenched in this political system. And so I'm wondering what's wrong with me? Because I, when I look at the Bible and I read what Jesus said he's, supposed to, he's all about and what then by proxy we're supposed to be all about, I couldn't reconcile the two. So didn't see a living out of what you were reading about Jesus? I didn't see Christians around me living out what I was reading. Okay. And I couldn't reconcile it. So I went off to, uh, I had, I owed the military some time uh, because of uh, my commitments. And so I, I left what I was doing and went on active duty. 
1982, early 1982, with this new experience, you know, that I'm carrying. And I finally came to the conclusion that I couldn't continue to be in the military. I talked to first my company commander and he said, well, I'm a Christian. And uh, then I talked to my, uh, the first sergeant and the sergeant major. And, and then I talked to the, 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 the base commander, full bird colonel. And they all said, I'm a Christian. You can be in the military. You just don't have to, you don't have to be a combatant. Now that sounded logical, except that I'm reading a story in the Old Testament that told me that that's not so. Because David, King David, was off to war, left his family behind, and the Amalekites came and attacked his family, captured them, and took all of David's stuff and went off. David comes back from the war that he just won, discovered all of his people are gone and his stuff, and he says, we're going to go get them. And he goes after them, and he catches them, and they destroy them, and get all their stuff and all their people back, plus the booty, plus the spoil from the Amalekites. Now, he left some of the guys had come from that first war so tired they couldn't go forward. So they stayed behind. He commanded them to stay behind and watch the stuff. So when they got back to base camp, the guys who were, went off to fight said they don't deserve to have any of the spoil. And he said, that's not so. That's not right. They were here supporting us by watching the stuff. So even if I'm a non-combatant, Say, let's say I'm just a cook in the mess hall. I'm still supporting the guy that points the gun who kills the guy that Jesus says I'm supposed to be trying to save. How do I reconcile that? I could not. So I had to get out. I filed for conscientious objector status in 1982. I was never treated so poorly as, a, as an officer, except in that time. Chase, I would go across the base and uh, enlisted men wouldn't salute me, man. Oh, that's right. And because uh, everybody knows you and wow. Yeah. And, and the other officers wouldn't wouldn't check them on it. And I'm sure there weren't a ton of black officers either. So and the, yeah, so you probably <laughs> really got the scourge of both of those angles. But it wasn't just the, the white, the, the white folks in there, the black, the black enlisted men wouldn't salute me either. Oh my gosh. So, so, you know, this was a, this was a big decision for me, but, but it was, I believe I'm convinced even today that it was the right decision. Now I got out and I went on living my life, uh, enjoying my life as a computer programmer with my little family. And, um, Christian at this point, I was in that mode until 2000. At this point, I had not cast a vote since 1972, and I was homeschooling my son, and his social studies assignment was to track the 2000 campaign, and uh, 
of course, in order for me to make sure he was doing his homework properly, I, I had to follow the campaign to keep him honest, right? Yeah, get him. And, and uh, I was listening to a speech by George W. Bush, and he said, if Congress brings a bill to my desk to ban partial birth abortions, I will sign it. I told my son, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for that guy right there. I came out of political seclusion to vote for George W. Bush. He did exactly what he said he would do. In this country right now, it's illegal to partly deliver a baby, then jam something up the back of his skull and suck its brain out and deliver him out dead. That's no longer legal in this country because of George W. Bush. Now, I voted for George W. Bush for that reason. At this time, I have been influenced by, I'm, a, I'm still a, a baby Christian at this point, essentially. But I've been influenced by conservative Christianity at this point. Largely it's, fair to say white conservative Christianity? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening. By the way, those first three uh, podcasts are fascinating guys. You know, right. I, I love the, the historical <laughs> pr perspective you guys bring to it. But, but there's a mistake that folks make that uh, conservative means uh, white evangelical. Most black folks are conservative, man. <laughs> Most black folks don't believe in abortion. <laughs> We're just not. Well, I would argue some of the Democratic Party is also conservative. So I guess that tracks. <laughs> well, yes, that's what I'm saying. So, so no, yes, a lot of it was that, Chase. But. Not, not necessarily. It wasn't okay. just that. No, good correction. I appreciate it. Yeah, it, it was Christianity in general saying that it's wrong to kill babies. Okay, it just so happens that the white evangelicals had a stronger voice in that in that regard. Okay, um, but I came out of seclusion to get involved. I got involved in politics again to vote for George W. Bush because he would stop that particular form of killing babies. Now, a, a couple of years later, the next year, 9-11 uh, happens, right? And after 9-11, George Bush was on a tear to find somebody to punish. You and know what, Cyrus, and I may have mentioned it in a previous conversation. It seems like uh, we had a bloodlust as, of a country, as a, as a country, and I don't want to distract us, but yeah, I maybe agree with what you just said. Well, the, the, you know, the thing is, man, and this is what's been so fascinating over the last year. And it's interesting that men in that in a position when men are in positions of power, they have to be very careful because people will believe you and act on what you say. So you can't be flippant like Donald Trump has been over the last four years any position of power, it, it, it could be on a much lower level. But you, when you're in a position where people will listen to you, you best be very careful what you say because they will act on what you say and they will believe you. So George Bush manufactured this lie that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He lied to the whole world, man. Now, I didn't catch it then. I didn't pick up on it then. So at this point, because 
I've been convinced that at the very least, I should be involved as a Christian to bring some kind of influence to bear upon the society, upon the culture. I, it is my duty, my obligation as a believer. I, I had bought that. And so I'm now voting again. I'm, I'm judicious in my vote. I'm not voting Democratic. I'm not voting Independent. I'm not voting Republican. I'm voting my conscience. And I'm voting, listen, this is important because this thing that I'm about to say has been obscured in all of the rhetoric and all of the, the, the arguments that are going on out there. We have gotten to the point in the United States where we have become creatures of the platform. Can you explain that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yes, creatures what I mean by that is that the re- <laughs> just recently, uh, I, I, I went out to Google and I Googled uh, Republican platform. And of course, Wikipedia is a genius, right? Mm. Brings it up. I've donated. I've, I've said thank you for the I have too. I have too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Cyrus, so. just saying, if you don't drop a dollar, then you, you know, it's a tough, uh, tough so, to be an authentic socialist. Keep going, John. So I printed out the Republican platform and I went through it and I said, man, I agree with probably 90% of this stuff. The only thing that I don't agree with is the, the way they deal, they want to deal with immigration. Uh, I don't agree with the way they deal with justice in capital letters. Um, uh, I don't agree that they, they the, the, one of the tenets of the Republican fl- plat- platform is unilateralism. I don't agree with that necessarily. Unilateralism when it's, when it's required, but as a rule, no. Multilateralism is what makes sense. So I said, wait, there's only three, out of, three things out of this that I don't really agree with. And then I went, Googled the Democratic platform. And lo and behold, there's only three or four things out of that that I don't agree with. As a believer, as a Christian, I should be supporting all of this stuff which means that if I'm supporting all of these things that God teaches us about in scripture, justice, mercy, no, no murder, no killing, right? If, I, if, I, if I'm going to be true to my faith, I must support all of these things on both these platforms so I can't take a side. All right. Well, uh, that was the first half of our John Sanders interview. Pretty, pretty good so far. I hope everyone sticks around for the second part, which we will be releasing shortly. What kind of voter he is? Wait till next time. Yes. Yes. He is born, he acts, he dies. But principles are eternal. And this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs. And... uh, Look forward to seeing you next time.